This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. The information provided or any opinions expressed in this show are of a general nature only and should not be construed or relied on as a recommendation to invest in a financial product or class of financial products. You should seek financial advice specific to your circumstances from an authorised financial advisor before making any financial decisions. A disclosure statement can be obtained free of charge by calling 0800 878 You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawks Bay. This is a program called Candy View. It's all about finances and it's our pleasure as always to have in the studio, in the hot seat, Nick Stewart from the Stewart Group in Hastings. How are you going, Nick? Very well, thank you. Great to be here. Uh, good to see you as always. Now, before, <laughs> we, before we start talking about today's topic, which is ESG, only heard of it uh, in the notes that you sent to me, sent to me but... Um, tell us a little bit about the Stewart Group. Oh, Stewart Group. We're a family-owned um, financial planning uh, investment advice business um, headquartered here in Hastings. We've also got an office in Wellington on the terrace. But, uh, yeah, no, we like helping people getting their financial house in order and keeping it that way. I might suggest that you'd be busier than ever because I was at the bank uh, last week and they're uh, looking at what their term deposit rates are and they're pitiful. Uh, mate, they are. They are pitiful. And look, those rates are going to come under pressure uh, because effectively a bank can borrow from us, the public, mm-hmm. in the form of a term deposit or they can borrow from the Reserve Bank. Now, the Reserve Bank, through the overnight cash rate, is uh, prepared to offer um, you know, a, um, a mediocre return, but a return. So you can, you know, you can borrow from them. Mm-hmm. The banks can borrow from them directly at point two five of a percent well. uh, directly. And the reserve bank's got plenty of cash to lend, and you know wants to and wants to stimulate, wants to be effective. But of course, on the other side, you've got if uh, if a bank can borrow off the reserve bank at point two five, or they can borrow off you and I, the public, on short, short dated term deposits at about three to four times that rate. Which one are they going to choose? Of course, exactly. And there's also an administrative burden. Well, there is a cost in dealing with the retail public because you know you have to have people to help out. The term deposits have to roll over. There has to be a process and systems. Whereas just going to the mothership, going to the reserve bank is extremely cost-effective. So what's going to happen to investing in or depositing money in banks when you say it's going to change? It's going to get worse, obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it is expected that that will happen as, um, you know, you've seen you know, far out, you know, over this COVID period, you've seen term deposit rates uh, come down markedly. You know, effectively, they've pretty much halved. Yeah. Um, you know, if you'd said to me six, nine months ago, hey, Nick, you know, do you think that uh, a term deposit rate for five years – not many people lock up their money for five years no. in term deposits. But if you did, would you know? If you'd said to me hypothetically, would you see a rate below two percent? I would have said to you, not on your life. But of course, that's what we now have. Yes. So, what will the average person be doing with that money? Because there are a lot of people out there who still, tr- you know, I'm not saying they trust banks, mm. but they, they, the banks are um, historically the place where they put their money. Yeah, correct. It is. Well, look, it's it's always a, it's um, easily accessible. 
uh, a lot of people have worked with the same bank for um, for their entire life, or if not one of a couple of banks. People are pretty much pretty loyal these days. I mean, you know, just the hassle of switching is just a pain. So it kind of you know, with anti money laundering and all mm-hmm. that documentation you've got to supply, a lot of people just stick with where, with where they are. So a lot of people, it's just it's just where you put your cash. Um, because of course you receive no advice in doing that. It's it's your DIY. Yeah. And and by you know with that DIY, there's no cost, as I said. But historically, New Zealand has had a higher cash rate than other nations because New Zealand, for a long period of time, we have spent more than we have earned, mm. and on that basis, we are a debtor nation. So we have to have a high rate of return to raise that capital on the markets to allow us to continue our binge on debt. Mm. Look, I don't mean to be flippant, but that's effectively what we've done. We borrow a lot of money as a nation. Um, And with that, you know, I mean, and we were doing that prior to KiwiSaver, and even with the advent of KiwiSaver, we're still a debtor nation. So a lot of people have just put their cash in term deposits or cash because the rate of return actually historically was okay. Yeah, it was. But for the first time ever... The rate of return offered now versus other countries, it's six and one half dozen the other. There's not much of a return premium, if anything. And all of a sudden, the kind of chickens or pigeons have come home to roost, Mm. and people are saying, Struth, I actually can't live on this. This rate of return is basically inflationary, Mm. or historical inflation Mm. rates, I should say, because inflation at the moment is pretty much negligible. Um, But but a term deposit's running at about the historical long-run inflation number now. It's almost like the banks don't want your money. Yeah, well, remember, if the banks can borrow off someone else, yep. and this someone else is the um, the mothership being the Reserve Bank, hey, if they can borrow off the mothership, the Reserve Bank, at a cheaper rate than you, the public, on term deposits, then they're going to go to the cheapest place. Because, mm. remember, the cheaper they borrow, they can then lend out at a cheaper rate in an extremely competitive mortgage market. So naturally, they're going to go to the cheapest source of capital. And at the moment, that's the Reserve Bank. Do you think there's also a fear factor in the investment market that at least you know your money's in the bank? You might only be getting yeah, 1.75% or whatever it is, but you know the money's there, whereas if you invested in the share market and there's a, a crash tomorrow, well, your money's gone, isn't it? Uh, it yeah, could well, be gone. Yeah, it could be gone. I mean, if you're invested in single or dual stock yeah. exposure, that could happen. Um, but certainly, yes, you could have a blood nose and a skin knee, mm. and your capital could be less than what you invested on the preceding day. But... There's always that opportunity cost. Now, I mean, there's always a there's always that you know cash is king. Mm-hmm. So, yes. and, and effectively in a low rate environment, those that have cash. So you've got this war chest, this little like the you know um, parachute at the back of the plane. So, so those that carry cash have the ability to move quickly because they're liquid, they're ready to go. But the opportunity cost is that they're basically receiving no return off that cash. Mm. That's the opportunity cost. And look, that has always been there, but when numbers start with a zero, (laughs) it really does sharpen the mind and sharpen the focus on what the opportunity cost is. As a company, are you finding that people are more aware of uh, investment now and return on investment, uh, particularly since those rates dropped? Yes, yeah, yeah. And and with the advent of the closure of uh, bonus bonds, that was a very, very high-profile, publicly covered or media-covered topic. So a lot of people have been focused on that. I still think there's a significant portion of the population that aren't really thinking about it and thinking that if they kind of put it in the bottom drawer, 
you know they'll wake up mm. tomorrow yeah. and it will be okay again. Look, unfortunately, on that particular scenario, we can look out at government bonds. In other words, the rate of return offered by the market for government bonds out to about 15 years. Mm. And I can tell you that the return level is flat. It is not flat and then goes up tomorrow night. It is flat for a darn long time, (laughs) the longest flat curve basically I've ever seen. Mm. So on that basis, this is the new norm. Yeah. The rate of return from fixed income or fixed interest, however you want to call it, um, or term it, uh, is going to be low. So look, eventually a lot of people are going to realize that the rate of return is lower. It is a little bit like someone that is in residential housing and in terms of they are a landlord as a business. Now, the person that has that property, they may talk about the yield on their property being, say, might be, say, 5%. But that will be on their historical purchase price. Mm. Whereas if sure. they were to actually look at what the value of the property is today versus their rental, then the number is not five. And it's that kind of thinking. That's where a lot of people are, are saying, well, the actual yield as a percentage that they are getting, you know, this COVID environment is very, very low. Okay, let's talk about ESG yes. investing. What is it? Well, ESG, it was, it kind of, um, took root in the 1970s. It's socially conscious investing. So, you know, ethical, sustainable investing. Coupled, so the, the E stands for environmental, environmental ethical. Um, the S stands for social and the G is governance. So in other words, you know, the decisions that are made in terms of at a directorship level mm-hmm. in terms of what companies are doing. Now, so it's part of the um, – it's become like an, a fundamental investment process for many. So this is where – let's say when you go to the supermarket and you elect – and you're looking at that container of dishwashing liquid or powder and you're looking at the container that it's made from. Is it um, fresh or new plastic or is it actually recycled milk bottles? So you're actually making mm-hmm. a decision and a preference there on how you're going to dispense your your grocery expenditure. Well, some people have taken the view that they wish to use the same viewpoint in terms of consideration on how they allocate their capital. And on that basis, they're saying that they want to screen out certain companies with their investment capital that they don't prescribe to or don't support or don't like the direction of travel with that industry or company. Who's it appealing to? Is it appealing to the uh, the woke sections of our community now? Uh, yeah, typically it is, although I would say that um, government, in terms of, say, KiwiSaver with the default schemes, mm-hmm. where that's effectively um, those default Default schemes are anointed and appointed by government, and those default schemes uh, have to have ESG overlay or exclusions applied. Um, so at a government level, it's coming through. But, yeah, in the wider investing public, um, certainly in the mum and dad sector, it is the more woke, as you mm-hmm. say, individuals. We're finding that some corporates and trusts where they do have like a, a governance team in the form of directors, independent directors, advisory boards or trustees, that they are cognizant of this as well. Now, the flip side is that you can either run an exclusion policy. So, for example, you know, you could exclude tobacco, yep. uh, gambling, 
petroleum, oil, um, fishing companies, etc. You know, you can exclude whatever you like. It's just, that's just an exclusion policy. That's no, you know, sure. you know, that, and and that's the simplest way that it's been done. But there are others that take a more. The approach I would say would be advocacy, and that is where they don't want to exclude the companies; they wish to change the companies. Mm. A little bit like employment law. You know, it used to be that if someone didn't fit the mould or wasn't up to the up to the task, that they would be. Um, um, basically retired mm. they would be um, fired whereas of course employment law is that no you need to put in the training to correct the behavior sure. to bring the person up to speed so i think it's if you think about it like that with employment and think about it with esg do you wish to fire those companies and industries or do you wish to work alongside those companies and industries and make a change from the inside so there are two distinct paths there that i've just covered are the returns on those companies soft <laughs> good, very good question. Now, if you'd asked me a year ago what were the results like, it was pretty much even, Stevens. But if you'd asked me what the results are today, the ESG overlay is actually performing better than the really? ordinary index. Now, but the reason is because you've excluded oil. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at oil, the price of oil and yes. oil companies and those exposed to the energy sector during this COVID period They've been absolutely shocking. So, you know, the S&P 500 index, top 500 U.S. companies, is basically back to, well, not quite, but darn near close to where it was pre-COVID. But if you look at the major oil and energy-producing companies, you're still down 30 to 40%. Yeah. So if you think about that, if you'd taken, therefore, if you'd had an ESG policy that excluded those energy companies, naturally your portfolio is going to be better than the market that has an exposure to those oil and energy Mm. companies. But that is the only reason. And I think back to when, prior to this, prior to the Canny View radio show, Ken, back in the about 2004, commodity funds were all the rage. Everyone wanted to get involved in commodity funds. It was like, you know, you've got to have some commodity exposure. A little bit like the gold bugs at the moment. Yeah. You know, you should always have a bit of gold. Yeah, you know, back exactly. then it was like you should always have a bit of commodity. And the reason was they were saying, well, commodities have done so well. Mm. And yet, if you look at it at a scientific level, a commodity, it, buying a basket of commodities is an inflation position. Yeah. Because you're buying a basket of goods that do nothing. Like you're buying a barrel of oil. You're buying a, a ton of pork bellies or, um, or coffee beans or wheat. So it actually doesn't produce anything. It only gets, it only, it only produces GDP or growth or productivity when it's used by someone to make something and it's processed. So it's effectively you're only buying an inflation hedge. Now the reason I'm telling this story, sorry about the little rabbit warren to get to it, <laughs> yeah. but imagine that if you looked at the scientific evidence of why commodity funds had done so well in the early 2000s, it was because oil had surged. Yeah. And if you removed oil from the commodity index at that point in time, the commodity funds, lo and behold, underperformed. Are you finding, though, that people might be a little bit nervous uh, because it's no longer socially acceptable to say, look, let's invest in uh, iron ore like in, for instance, in Australia, or let's let's invest in gold because, you know, someone's going to dig a hole which is miles (laughs) deep in the the ground, Um, or, or oil because, I mean, I might suggest that that's probably where the best money is. 
Yeah, well, the the flip side argument there is that um, if you if a whole lot of companies are excluded by law or by choice from the investor, either at a corporate or retail level, therefore capital will be pulled away from those companies and will go into companies that are ethical, are sustainable, and have gov- great governance programs. So therefore, the return off those assets, where because people are going to drive the price up on mm-hmm. those other assets, the price is going to be driven down on the so-called sin stocks or yes. sin areas, <laughs> right. and therefore one would argue that the profitability from the excluded companies will actually be higher in the long term mm. than those that are presently favoured. Do you ever get people come and say, "Look, you know, I know it's I know it's not uh, politically correct for me to say this, but I want to put my money in iron ore, I want to put my money in gold, or companies that are producing this sort of stuff." Is there still um, a market for that, or are people? a little bit scared now to put their hand up and say, hey, I want some of that money, buddy. Oh, well, uh, um, yeah, you occasionally get the person that wants to own some Lockheed Martin that makes yes. fighter jets or Raytheon Corporation that builds mis- you know, builds Tomahawk missiles or sidewinders, you name it. People have, have they have their preference and they mm-hmm. can choose what they desire to do with their capital. And, you know, it, it is their capital. It's their sure. choice. These are publicly publicly listed companies, and you can either buy their listed shares or you can buy their debt securities in the form of some bonds. Mm. If they issue some bonds, you can buy them. No problem. That's your choice. But what we're what we're generally finding is people actually prefer to hold the market and have the diversified yeah. position, and instead, through their philanthropic dollar, that they prefer. That's where they. Um, that's where they. You know, add to the betterment of mankind mm-hmm. um, because they they believe they can do that in a more effective basis. Yeah. But then, but remember, I gave you the two paths. There's advocacy and there's exclusion. We then get quite a few people who've done a little bit of reading that I talk to um, and clients say, Nick, I actually prefer that um, to be an advocate rather than run an exclusion policy. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the um, fund managers that we work with on a global basis has a phenomenal advocacy program. They vote on everything. They will stonewall directors who have made bad environmental decisions. It's quite it's 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 an amazing sector to watch because I know that some of the really large global fund managers and these are monsters, these are big companies, you know, big pension funds. A lot of them in the past haven't really they haven't really embraced um their the social fabric of what it is like to hold capital across hundreds of thousands, millions of people and voting on their mm. behalf. Because effectively a fund manager is holding your and my capital, well, how should they vote? Mm, sure. Well, a lot of them, you know, quite a few have now come to the fore and are, you know, they have a, a division within the fund management company of how they vote. And they will track certain directors that are people they do not wish yeah. to have on these companies. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal to watch how that has changed over the years. The average punter, they probably wouldn't care, would they? I mean, the average guy who signs up for KiwiSaver through his job and the, and the boss mm, says, mm. Hey, where, do you, where do you want to be? Yeah. I'll, I'll be in the, uh, in the middle one. Uh, thank you very much. It's a sort of, a, it's a bit safe, but it's a better return than, uh, the basic one. Is that how it normally works? Yeah, normally it is. Normally it is. And, and it'll often be an article such as the article I wrote in the uh, local newspaper recently, or they'll listen to this radio show and they'll be like, 
oh, that's what ESG's about. That's what sustainable mm. investing's about. Oh, is that how governance works? And they'll then say, where is my capital exposed? Mm. You know, the term deposit I have with the bank, how much does my term deposit with, say, Westpac or ASB have to the mining sector? Most of them have never actually thought about it. No, exactly. Yeah, and and we need to remember that all industries tap into the same capital markets. So when Boeing goes to the market to raise money, or Lockheed Martin goes to the you know market to raise some money for its new F thirty five fighter jet, yep. it's competing in the same capital pool for the same investor capital. Mm. And, and, and yet where your capital goes to, a lot of people don't think, so when I put my innocent dollar of my savings, I wonder where it goes to. Yeah. 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 Well, the average person doesn't care, do they? <laughs> I wonder, uh, would most yeah. advisors, uh, not like yourself, because yeah. I know you guys are sort of the ultimate, but would most advisors say to a customer coming through the door, now you do realize that if we go into this pool of um, investments here, that this is what's going to happen to your money? Because you guys do that, don't you? Yeah, we do do that. What we'll do is we'll ask people, do they have an ethical preference? We particularly do this uh, at a trust level where, where you've got like a corporate entity where there are individuals. So it's not just, um, say, you investing on your own behalf mm. or as a couple. We, we're very specific on having this into the process around trusts and corporates. And we find that's where the biggest take up is because they get asked a lot of questions at the AGM from the floor. Mm. Particularly on the one that I've seen this happen the most is across the uh, iwi and hapu groups, because they certainly do have a um, an ethical view on how capital should be allocated, mm. uh, and I think that and I think that's really important. Now you briefly touched on bricks and mortar a yes. bit earlier in the program, we're just about out of time, but I did no that, that's my last bit that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> it's no sign of it slowing down. No, no, there is not. Um, it's yeah, yeah, quite phenomenal. I mean, I look at, um, you know, I look at an hour and in the street that I live in, a, a you know neighbouring property property sold to 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 a foreigner. Uh, the foreigner, as I understand, um, was actually unable to work remotely, mm-hmm. so it's been on sold to another foreigner who just wants a bolt hold mm. for the future to possibly move back to New Zealand. And look, if that's just in my street, and I, I've got anecdotal evidence yeah, of that everywhere. happening. Yeah, everywhere. So what you've got is you've got um, a lot of foreign capital, but these are not foreigners. These are Kiwis. Mm-hmm. These are Kiwi sure. passport holders. These are people that have the right to come home. So there's no foreign buyer ban for these people. But they are wanting to have a little bit of God's own. Now, who doesn't want to have a yeah. bit of God's own? But the problem is they're earning foreign wages competing with us where we've had basically no wage or salary increases for about a decade i mean our productivity level in this country is pretty benign and therefore our compensation for our human capital is relatively flat which is sad and but so what we've got we've got a a property market that's humming propped up by a lot of a lot of um, foreign kiwis who'd like a bolt hold here if things get worse but we've also got those interest rates that we touched yeah, on earlier that exactly. are at record lows. So, you know, people back in the day, well, when I say back in the day, I, when I took out my first mortgage um, at about age 25, I was borrowing the, I remember, the um, five-year fixed rate at that time was 8.25%. Mm. Now, um, whereas today, you know, you're talking 
you know, it's got a three in it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just absolutely phenomenal. So a lot of people, they can stretch. So even though we haven't had that wage and salary inflationary productivity lift, because interest rates have come down, people have had the ability to borrow more. But then you've got FOMA. So FOMO, hmm. the fear of missing out. And that seems to be a phenomenal thing. Um, now, I see this affecting Commonwealth countries and their citizens a lot more than others, but that's where people just really, really want to get in. Yeah. And, and when that happens, you know, people are buying properties locally. Uh, you and I have spoken about mm-hmm. this. They're buying properties with no limb, no yep. building report, um, <laughs> sight unseen. They just want and to get in. They just want to get in. Yeah. They just want something. And um, come hell or high water, they just want to buy. And when that market's like that, and you've got that foreign, that those expat Kiwis coming back, and us not building a lot of homes or not building enough homes, well, what happens? Supply and demand. Sure. This is 101 economics from third form. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember what what is that year nine now? Yeah, oh, but year nine. I think <laughs> I think I'm learning these things, and and that is that you know if you shrink supply, um, wow, you know price will go up. I watched a debate on TV uh, over the weekend, and uh, one one comment which sort of was I was not staggered, but I thought, wow, yeah, why wouldn't you invest in a house? And one of the commentators said, look, we've got a population at the moment of five million. Wouldn't it be great if we had a population of ten million? I thought, wow, why wouldn't you want to buy a couple of houses and wait for that population to increase so that you can make a bit of a killing? Yeah, you, yeah, you could. But let's bear in mind that as if we don't have the wage, if we don't have meaningful productivity and wage growth, we become peasants in our own land. Mm. So foreigners come in or people with foreign earned capital, good Kiwis, they're allowed to come home, passport holders. But effectively we would live here and we would not be able to afford to own a house. I mean, yeah. that, 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 that is what it's, it's is steering it's, it's down the barrel. Now, though, isn't it? it is, correct. Yeah. And that's why you've got this massive early transition of wealth from parents and grandparents helping children and grandchildren get onto the property ladder. And that, I mean, it's, I mean, it, effectively we're just bidding up the value of an asset. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. Is there a train wreck coming? Well there's, well, there's either a train wreck coming or a period of phenomenal non-productivity like, oh, sorry, a, a period of the returns being extremely flat like mm. Germany or Italy or like the United States for about a decade ago did that. Yeah. Uh, and that's where it's just new people and Kiwis who are just middle-income earners cannot afford to get on the ladder. Mm. Well, that that is that is effectively what we're talking about. So um, I'm not sure where it's going to land. Yeah. I wish I had a crystal ball on this. I'm just um, like many other folk. I'm just grateful that I do have a roof over my head that I own. Yes. And uh, you know, thank goodness because yeah. um, I would imagine if I flip back to when I was in my mid twenties, um, you know, and on a salary, no and, chance. Yeah, yeah. I wow, and I was working and saving as much as I mm. possibly could, <laughs> yes. and and just every every month you'd look at the QV numbers, or no, quarterly you get the QV numbers on their free email newsletter, and you'd look at it and you go, well, I've, I've had a really, really good quarter of savings, and I'm going really, really hard, and I'm, I'm, I'm living frugally, but every month the boat just seems a little bit further away, because... Because no matter how hard you save, can't keep up. That you can't keep up with what's happening at the moment. It's that FOMO pumped up, you know, COVID property market, and yeah. and I do feel very sorry for those that are looking or trying 
desperately to get into the market. Incredibly frustrating for them. Absolutely. Just remind our listeners, Nick, if you want, Nick, if you want to come and see you for some sound financial advice, how do we do that? You can um, give us a call on 0800 878 961 or come and see us at 204 Kadamu Road in Hastings, the Black Basalt Stone Building with a tartan logo that you can't miss, or come and visit us on the terrace in Wellington. As always, my pleasure, Nick. You look after yourself. Talk to same time, same place next time. Look forward to it. The information provided or any opinions expressed in this show are of a general nature only and should not be construed or relied on as a recommendation to invest in a financial product or class of financial products. You should seek financial advice specific to your circumstances from an authorised financial advisor before making any financial decisions. A disclosure statement can be obtained free of charge by calling 0800 878 961. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.